Bibles are on the edges if you don't have one, or grab your devices and click along or follow along in an app, or even just a Google search will get you to Exodus 6. Um, Our Bibles here are in the ESV, and if you are grabbing one of those Bibles, it's on page 48, second book in the Bible. We've been walking through this story and, and really trying to take it as an allegorical history, a theological history of what it reveals for who God is with his people. And as I've said again and again, we won't walk through every piece of it or every part or every story. And this would be one that you would have assumed we would have skipped. Because right in the middle of Exodus chapter 6 comes our favorite, a genealogy, a list of ancient names that we have to assume had some bearing and meaning and reason to be there, to be included at some point. But today, for our modern ears as we read it, uh, seems to have absolutely no bearing at all. And in the midst of this story seems quite like an interruption. If you're just reading along, you would likely say, why is this here now? This is abrupt and it seems inserted. And if you are newer with us, you're probably thinking, I really cannot believe that he's about to preach a sermon on a genealogy. But if you've been here for a while, you already know the answer. We do believe every part of God's Word is is inspired and is useful and beneficial. And we do need to understand it in its historical context to, to recognize that it did have more purpose and meaning originally than it may come to us. But I will say a few cursory, general statements on a genealogy, and then I will seek to use it as an inspiration for where I think we might be, and I hope that would be meaningful. And now you are riveted. I'm not going to read the genealogy. I've given you plenty of time to get there with a page number, a reference number, Exodus 6, starting in verse 14, and if you're really interested, you can read along, but I will give some general remarks. When we come to a genealogy, really any time in the Scriptures, and many of them show up in the Hebrew Scriptures, which some have called the Old Testament for many years, uh, after meeting with a a friend who's a rabbi, and he he said, can you please, Christians, not keep referring to it as the Old Testament, as if new is better? Uh, It's offensive to us, and I've resonated with that, and so It is the First Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures. Uh, We believe it is God's story. It's all God's story. So we rightly would recognize that. Whenever you come to these genealogies, uh, they are often markers indicating transition. And it's true here, although it seems more abrupt. There's, There's other times where it seems obvious. Okay, the story is progressing in a significant way, maybe even generations, and there's a record of of what's happened in between. The heads of families are given. Uh, when we come to the beginning of the second covenant, or the New Testament, in Matthew, there's a genealogy that traces what's, hap- what's taken place to get to this point. It's a marker, a literary device, if you will, of transition. So that's a primary, and it is what's happening here. And as we, I believe, collectively here and more broadly in our culture and society and our world are in the midst of significant transition, we need a metaphorical genealogy today. 
We need a marker. We need something to name that we are in transition, that the story is moving from one place to another, a new chapter. And I think we're longing for that. I am. And I wonder if God would start to bring that. Now, we might have our own metaphorical genealogy sign that God gives word, confirmation, if we're taking notice, if we're pausing to see, that may be more individual, as you are personally in, in some kind of transition, looking for clarity, trying to make a, t- a difficult decision that may change the course of these next number of years. Maybe the initial transition has come through the pandemic and through all that has unsettled in these subsequent years. We collectively, as a church, are longing for a metaphorical genealogy. We probably won't, this, this name probably won't stick, but for today, I feel like it's contextual and important. We are longing for a marker to say, yes, we name it. We're in transition. What do we do with it? What does that mean? Is God with us? Will he lead us? All the questions that God's people have always asked. That is what these original authors of this story were using this, by inserting this genealogy here, that's what they were saying. Without chapter markers or verse markers in this ancient scroll text, they were putting this genealogy in saying, hello, the story's changing. It's shifting. It's moving on. Take notice. It's bookended on both sides of the genealogy by once again God, Yahweh, saying to Moses, I am coming. I am with you. I'm paraphrasing. I'm with you. I will send you. You will deliver my people. And again, Moses saying, no, I don't want to do it. No, I don't have the eloquent voice. Send someone else. We see that bookended on this side of the genealogy. So this is the marker of transition. At a much broader level, any time you come to a list of names, and if you are a Bible reader, you probably just skip over it. Anyone? All the heads turned down. No, it's okay. Um, We can remember that, one, above all, God is a big God with a big family who loves all of his family and has them by name, has their beginning and their end in mind and cares about it. And that can remind us that he sees us, he names us, he is with us. That's not the primary purpose, I think, of most authors who slide it in there, but it is a way that we can respond. While we might scan over those names, which mean nothing. It's like, have you ever attended a graduation of a family, extended family member? And they're, gonna, they're actually going to read off every one of the names, and you're only looking for one. And you know everyone has a story and a meaning and is important, and there's cheers that go on, but for you, very little. To the neighboring high school, it means nothing, and certainly to subsequent generations. And it feels like that sometimes when we come to these genealogies. So at a broad level, we receive that God knows us all by name, and we can be encouraged by that. Genealogies are often a link to the past, a sign of remembrance with a present implication and maybe even a future reality. Where this one enters into the story, it is obviously recording a link to the past, past generations, even centuries of family story is being told in this genealogy, and it extends to Aaron's grandson. So we clearly know that when this is being written, it is much later, or certainly when this genealogy is inserted in, it's much later. But what that is meant to do is, while this story is in tension, will God show up? Will he deliver? Will he be faithful to his promises? 
this is a marker that, yes, he will. The story is going on. The story is continuing. And so it gives us hope as we enter into the story and resonate with it. That God is the God of the past. As he's been saying to Moses, I am the God of your father, of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, of the patriarchs. Therefore, what? I am the God now. I am the same God. You can trust me and I will lead you. And now this one gives us hope for the future of these coming generations. God will be faithful. It's interesting that in this genealogy specifically, Aaron's line is the one that is given prominence. He gets the legacy. Aaron is Moses' older brother. And we kind of see it here. Moses saying, no, I, God, I don't want to be the one. Send another. Now, he's given in to that. He's relented. But God has said, I will send Aaron. And Aaron gets this priestly blessing. Maybe God's intention all along. But Moses could have maybe had the priestly blessing. But Aaron was the one that has given it prominence here. They are brothers that work together in the deliverance of God's people. God raises up by grace and mercy a family. Now, again, a final way, and I, I think the primary way, as I mentioned, of, of how these authors use these genealogies is by a marker of transition. And that's the inspiration that I want to draw from this specific genealogy. I'm sure more can be said. We could go through the names. We could try to understand the literature structure, and there is much about that, you can pick up a Bible commentary and do that work. And since I know that you won't, that's the reason why I'm not continuing to preach specifically on these names. But allow me to draw this inspiration for a present-day genealogy, metaphorically speaking. No doubt, we're living in the midst of transition. And I think in some ways, just to name it and to know it is vital when so many of the voices in our world are, are pretending like it's not happening. That we are getting to somewhere new, not in the midst of transition. And as I've often said, change can often be very good. Many people say, I hate change. It's actually probably not the change that you hate. It's the transition. It's, the, it's that liminal space, liminality, the space of kind of having a foot on both sides, like in your, what's your, what's your, Youth, like, when do you move out of youth into adulthood? It's usually not just one time or one moment or one, one day. It's a, it's a season, and it's, especially in our culture, I think, hard to mark the beginning of that and the end of it. That's a liminal space to the rest of your life. It's a threshold experience. Uh, you who have new babies, change is good. That's new life. But the transition to those new routines and rhythms, that's hard. And so when people say, I don't like change, it's often, I don't like transition, I'm unsettled. The footing that I once had is, is shaky or has been, the rug's been ripped out from underneath me. And I think that describes largely our world over these past number of years. And really a reason that I felt compelled to walk us through this ancient story and try to find meaning in it today is because Israel models a liminal space. They will be delivered out of slavery and enter into the wilderness and will end up being there for 40 years, being formed as God's people, learning to trust him and walk with him. And it will not be easy and it will not be quick, but God is with them. 
God will dwell with them, and God will show them that they can rely forever upon him. And I believe we have some strong parallels as we travel through a liminal kind of space, maybe individually, maybe in our families, in our neighborhood, community, or even more broadly, in our world. I think also maybe some irony to reading through this ancient list of names that just kind of jumps into the middle of the story. We can read it and say, I, I don't get it. What is, what is this here for now? Why is it important? What meaning does it have? Are we not asking those very similar kinds of questions in life right now? What does this mean? Is there any purpose for it? How does it fit together? How does it fit into the larger story? We could talk at a really meta level about our culture and society as networked and complex as it is, how much it has changed through the tech boom of recent decade, and then certainly microwaved by the pandemic. Really, every system and structure that fits under that umbrella from business, industry, education, politics, government, and certainly the church, and that is a little more contextual, so I'm trying to zoom us in a little bit. In one of the favorite, my favorite podcasts that I listen to, um, from a pastor down in Australia, uh, good to be out of context a little bit, I, I think Mark Sayers is a, is a brilliant thinker and um, cultural missionary, and I love listening to, to his insight. They, they had an interview this week with, um, with, let me get his name correct, Terry Walling, and he was recording some of the more recent data of shift that's taken place in the American church. Terry's an American, and it's, that's still, it's still new data. We're still trying to figure out truly what has shifted and ways of discerning what that means. But anecdotally, I think it's, it's right on. And these are, these are crude general numbers, but he says it this way. This is across local churches and denominations. In these last few years, since the beginning of the pandemic, a third have left the church in the sense that they, they either don't know what they believe anymore or have changed their faith, but have completely withdrawn from any, any faith community. So it's a pretty broad, uh, not just an evangelical lens, but a, a pretty broad swath across the American church uh, religiosity landscape. A third have left, have withdrawn, likely not to come back or with no intention to come back. A third have moved. Actually, there's been a great, a great migration in this time. And the pandemic and, and digital age has afforded that. A third have moved. Now, some of those mo movements have meant they've found new local churches, and we've seen that here too, and lost some of our, our dear core families and friends who have, have moved out of state, out of, out of the area in this time. So that seems also true. In that category is some that have moved and haven't reconnected yet. And so that's still some of the wondering and waiting. How long will that take? What, what does it look like to be community uh, today and certainly in a church context? And a third, that leaves a third, right? A third are struggling to hang on, but often wondering and waiting. And will they join one of the other two categories? And again, those are pretty crude general numbers, but as I talk with other, other friends and pastors, both in our region and from beyond, that seems to line up pretty clearly. That, that indicates, there's some data indicating just some of this great shift in transition. And again, I think that can apply maybe in so many other areas of our life. If you consider that more personally, those third, third, third categories. Now, make it more personal about your work your family, your relationships. 
your values, what you thought you knew, your routines and disciplines or rhythms. A third has been, has vanished. A, th- a third has shifted dramatically. And a third, you're like struggling to hang on. It's there, but you're hanging on. I wonder if you could make that more personal. Just, to all, just all of this to name that we are in this radical transition as a culture and as a world. And we want to be past it and through it. So did Israel when they were in the wilderness space. In fact, they wanted to go back to what was, even though what was was not good in slavery. At least it was something they knew. And I hear that, I hear, heard that so much. Maybe there's finally, after many years now, a yielding to there is no going back. But over these years, it's been a longing for what was in the past. Although if we would remember, was not necessarily good or thriving. We were just accustomed to it. In that interview that I was listening to on the podcast, so if you're still wondering, I mean, some of this for you, for you is just resonant deeply. For others, you're, you're still trying to get there. I, I understand that. Here's what it might feel like. These are the responses of those that recognize they are in acute transitional time. This is what it might feel like, and especially if you're any, in any kind of leadership capacity where others are looking to you, for, for some answers or decisions or to chart a new course, you feel this likely more acutely. This is, these are drawn out of, I think, hundreds of responses of those that are feeling in transition and unsettled, an inability to focus. It, maybe that's always true for, for some, but more than ever, feeling scattered, easily distracted, a sense of restlessness. A lack of energy and motivation. Certainly some of this can border on, on discouragement or depression, uh, but this is often also drawn from those that don't necess- wouldn't necessarily describe it that way, but are finding just a lack of energy and motivation, wondering if their current efforts are really even going to make a difference or be worth it. The picture is of squeezing a turnip for juice, right? You may get something but it's a whole lot of effort and there's gonna be a lot of waste in the process. And it can be demoralizing at times. An awareness and a frustration that everything we used to do that produced a certain amount of results is far less effective or not effective at all. That can lead to a great instability. A realization that big change does need to happen but not necessarily sure what change needs to happen next or most, and wondering if you even have the energy or the time to change in that way. And then with this in isolation. Now, I think this this one is the great work of the enemy, the adversary of the kingdom of God, however he might be named, to isolate in order to break down to steal, kill, and destroy, as Jesus says, our enemy is only about. Because ironically, there may be nothing in the last hundred years that has unified our world more than the pandemic, in the sense that we're all experiencing the same thing, and we feel more divided than ever, because the enemy's insidious, just like a virus, not easily seen, 
but effective, causing fear and isolation. And so the response of those in this transition is often feeling alone in it, feeling that everyone else is okay and I'm not, when in reality, most of us are experiencing the same thing. Uh, now, in these descriptions, I, as I'm listening to, to the podcast, I had to re-listen to it because at the time I was on a walk and then at the gym and I was like, I need to, <laughs> I need to recenter on that. And, and I just felt, I felt seen in that. And I wonder if anyone else feels seen in that. You're not alone. Be encouraged by that. In this, I think we're all longing for answers and for those that are are. are Growing in their faith, wondering about their faith, striving to still follow Jesus or follow after God, we are longing for the answers from God. We're crying out to him, and the encouragement from this podcast was, what if, what if God is the answer? Not, not his voice, not his vision, not clarity, though he may want to give all of those things, but God himself what if he is the answer? Instead of calling out to him, we're calling out for him. God, would you come and meet with us? May we know your presence. What if surrender and trust are the answer? Not necessarily understanding and a pathway out or to the future, but surrender and trust? What if we are meant to get as much as possible out of this liminal space of transition, as hard as it is, that we might be formed into the people that God wants us and needs us to be for the coming age? Now, none of those answers are popular or eagerly received. Yeah, we'll go find other answers because there's other voices out there that are saying, We've got the answer. We're going toward that. As a metaphor, if you need to lose 100 pounds or just a lot of weight, I'll tell you the answer is not take this pill once a day. You don't need to change your diet or exercise at all, and you will be who you want to be. That is not the answer. And even if that pill is effective or seemingly effective, it is dangerous. And yet our world is selling a whole lot of pills. What if the answer is God himself, is surrender and trust, and is entering into this space with a willingness to grow in it as God would grow us and meet us? Now, I do believe there's things that we can do in this space not to race through it. And I want to walk us through some practicals. Because just to present this, especially if it's hitting hard, one, you can... You, I hope you're encouraged that you're seen and you're not alone. And that can be often booing in our faith. But I'd like to give some handholds of what, do I, you got anything for me? Any practicals? Because I am in that space. That is what I feel. Especially for you leaders or needing to make decisions on behalf of teams or others or even within your own household. Three things, three R's, of course. Remember, I've been getting away from alliterations. This feels good. It just kind of flowed to me this, this week. Remember, that's one. Relationships, that's two. And routines. This story in Exodus, we've already seen this theme of remembrance repeatedly. Remember, 
God has not changed. Everything about us and our world and our thoughts might have changed. God hasn't. Remember. Remember, Moses. I'm the God of the patriarchs. I'm the God of your father. You can trust me now. I'm not changing. We must be people of remembrance of our God who has never changed from this story thousands of years ago recorded to our present day. He is the God of the past. He's the promiser of the future, and therefore we can trust him today. We have rhythms that would bring us to a place of remembrance. Remember that he knows your name, as we see in this genealogy, which means he knows everything about you. Name in the Hebrew Scriptures is more than a few letters that people call you by. It's character. It's nature. It's who you are. It's identity. It's your image in the image of God. He knows your name, and he names you. He numbers your days. He knows your beginning and your end, your thoughts and your heart. And he loves you. You are beloved. He delights in you. He calls you son. He calls you daughter. He knows your name. Collectively, his people, he names as the church. And he gives powerful names to the church. First Peter 2, 9 says, you, church. And he's specifically speaking to the church who's doesn't have a Jewish heritage, which would be most of us today, besides tracing all the way back, but even for many of us, we can't get there. Peter says, you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We are named. God has named us. Remember this, church. As a practical step, something you could do this week. Remember a time where you felt spiritually alive or close, intimate to the Lord in your walk with him. A time, a season, maybe it was years ago. Maybe it was when you first came into some semblance of faith or recognizing what Christ had done for you and the life you had in God. And that next season was just one of growth and life and seeing him kind of everywhere and hearing his voice. Whatever that season is, pick a season. I hope you, you have one. And again, maybe it is a long time ago and our memory does fail us except generally fuzzy. That was good. <laughs> Find your journals in that time if you were a journaler. And I know some of you are, maybe not everyone. If you don't have a journal or a record that you kept in, in walking with God or a Bible you read at the time or some kind of book that you took notes in, but if you do, find it and just go back into that place. Carve out some space to remember. Maybe if you don't have something like that, pull out old photos of the, just that season of life and, and take some space to remember to be more grounded to a larger story, to the God who hasn't changed, even if you feel like everything around you or even in you has changed. Be people of remembrance. That's one. Second relationship, back to that isolation. It's so much easier to be isolated, even in a world of social media today, than ever before. We must be in relationship with one another. You are not alone. Don't attempt to go through transition alone. They need you as much as you need them. You need other voices. Draw near to the community you already have. 
If you feel like that's been unsettled or lost, and for many, many have lost deep, close relationships, even in family, since 2016, let's go before the pandemic, ones they never thought would be shaken or broken. And so there may need to be new community being developed, and that can be daunting. That can feel heavy, and you don't get there overnight. But if you don't take steps toward it, you'll never get those same kinds of relationships or friendships that are developed over the course of time. But when there's a bonding around the same kinds of themes and story and heart, those relationships can grow more quickly, especially as you draw near and serve together with others. Doesn't, I'm not, yes, we could use more service activity within the church. I'm actually primarily speaking of ways to serve into your community and bless and do that together. Stay in your life group. Get into a life group. I'll encourage us again, elders, whenever we meet, we're like, wow, we, we have as many or more people in our life groups on a two-week uh, rhythm than, than are in the seats in the, on the more, in Sunday mornings. That's, now, most of you are the same ones, but we recognize there's, a, a, there's a, a longing, a value, and a commitment to that, and we think that's right. That is where discipleship happens. That's where more church happens around tables, getting to know one another, learning new perspectives still praying for one another and encouraging one another. Uh, we have four groups running. They're mostly full, but we will make space. If you don't have that kind of community, please talk with me or one of the elders. Do not give up meeting together, the author of Hebrews says, 1025, as some are in the habit of doing. I love when 2,000-year-old words speak right into our present day clearly. Some are in the habit of not meeting together, of withdrawing but let us encourage one another all the more as we see the day of Christ approaching. All the more we need encouragement for one another. So pursue relationships. Maybe it's not in a life group. Maybe it's simply through inviting someone to your house for dinner or out to eat after church on Sunday and just pursue relationships. Pursue individual ones as well as community. If you can find a mentor, a coach, a therapist, maybe all three. A mentor usually pours in, a coach draws out and a therapist often walks alongside us in, in deeper kind of work. And so all three could be beneficial. You're not alone. Don't go alone. Re commit to relationships or steps toward them. Remembrance, relationships, three routines and rhythms. Just a simple reminder. I've invited us to three practices. This is how walking with God works daily, simple they're not necessarily easy to commit to, right, discipline, but simple practices, that's, that's what forms us. That is spirituality. It's not going from zero, man, I do nothing spiritually, to tomorrow I'm going to set aside an hour and be on my knees in prayer and worship and put on, put on hymns and old music, and I'm going to get that journal out, which I've never done before, but I am going to be a journal, journaler. And I'm going to really, I mean, it's, it's end of April here, but I'm going to read through the Bible this year. Let's go. No, we don't. That's, that's way too ambitious. Freedom. Find your own routines and rhythms. I've just invited us to three that have been maybe the most powerful and forming in my life. And I've invited them to all of us because I think they're ones we can all add if we're doing nothing or even slowly add if we're actually have our regular rhythms of regulation and spirituality and walking with God. And they are simply wake, walk, and thank. So yeah, I'm giving you three more in the midst of a three, so bonus time. Check the clock. Let me wrap shortly. 
simply, and I've preached on it before, so just a teaser if you haven't heard it, but a reminder if you have, and if you've fallen off, start again tomorrow, pick one of these. Wake, I'm so committed to this one as maybe the most important, which means I don't do it every day, but when I do, it shapes everything. How we wake up matters. I wake up earlier than I want to wake up. That's a discipline, most days. I, there, there should be, hopefully, days without alarms. I hope you can carve that out. But di- that discipline of waking up early and inviting the first voice into my life to be God's voice, that can be done various ways. But most of us invite a totally other voice or any number of voices through a device in our hand or through a TV or the radio that pops on that has control that morning. And we don't maybe think we're giving it control, but we are. Let the first voice be in your life be God's voice. That might be simply through pausing before even grabbing that phone and looking at anything that's on it and saying, God, I want to hear you today. Would you speak? For some of us, we need to get our coffee, go into a new place, sit down, open a book or our Bible, or actually pause and pray and let God speak. And maybe both are good. And then go ahead, grab grab the phone. I mean, I'm talking about just a few moments. I mean, maybe you get an extended time. Awesome. But I'm talking about a few moments before you do need to look at your day and and, and get going. Carving that out, how we wake up and how we invite God's voice. Win the day in the morning. Win the battle of the blankets and then win the battle of who's going to speak into your life today. That's wake. Walk simply. I mean, literally. Actually, walk every day. Now, some of you already do this for exercise. So if you do it for exercise and you're pretty intentional on it, then at least for a part of that walk, slow down. Don't make it about exercise anymore. Take some deep breaths and just be present to the world that's around you as you walk. Maybe you pray, maybe you don't. Maybe it's simply silence. Take out the earbuds or whatever. Just walk and be present. Be a walking people. Some of you don't walk at all, uh, and that's a new rhythm. And so down to the street corner or back before around the block or a mile or two gets added maybe, uh, but be a walking people. And three, as we've already practiced this morning, gratitude, thankfulness. What if the majority of our prayers were filled with gratitude? What if it's how we started and then we made the space for all of our requests and our supplications and our, our longings, because that is real and that is good, but gratitude. And the story of Exodus reminds us to be grateful for simple things, like our freedom, like our daily food. Let's be people filled with gratitude, committing to it from that morning waking time to our meal times to before bed. Simple prayers. These are simple, but I believe spiritually formational rhythms, and they are not exhaustive by any means. And You have your own. Discover your own. Find the ones that ground you, that help you regulate, because in the midst of this season of incredible transition that we're all in, God will lead us through. Be encouraged. Those seasons do end. They may not end the way we want them to, but they will end. And God is leading us through, but in the midst, he wants, us to, wants to do in us something that can't be done anywhere else. May instead of trying to rush through it, we enter into it with intentionality of remembrance, of relationships, and some rhythms and routines that would help us in faithfulness. I'll invite the team to come and res- help us respond 
This this is a regular rhythm and routine for us if you're a guest with us. To hopefully turn to God's word, hear him speak, and I hope it's by far where he took you through my words and his words, not specifically my words, but you went there and engaged with him and now need to respond to confirm something that he's saying. God's word does two things. It convicts and it encourages it needs to do both. Convict where this, this needs to change. This is what God wants me to change, but I'm encouraged. I'm not discouraged. I'm not crushed by it. That's grace. That's mercy. That's opportunity. And God's word does that. And so we want to create that space while we sing a few songs, whether you can stand and sing again, and that's easy to express your heart through these authors' words and make them your prayers, or whether it still needs to be more internal. Be free as you respond. We have communion every Sunday. We have vegan bread. It's gluten-free because we want to open up the table as much as possible to anyone's. If you're our guest, be welcome to the table as we respond. We, we, we invite you to get up, and there's elements in the back, and go to the table and receive and take and partake, whether individually or with someone that's with you, as you feel led. We say often we want to be people of movement. We need to get up and move and draw near to God. But this meal is, a, is an invitation from Jesus himself to remember. Remember who God is. Remember what I have done, he says. My body has been broken for you. My life given for you. My blood shed for your forgiveness, for your saving, for your life. And so wherever we are today, from the smallest amount of faith to our faith is big and, and strong today, draw near, respond, give thanks. And if God has been speaking and you need to confirm something, do it with one another, share that, or write, write yourself that note, make that, make that commitment so that as we walk out of here into probably crazy, hectic weeks, we can be grounded in something he's inviting us to, convicting and encouraging us to, to walk in. Be the church today and in the coming week. Good to see you, care for you, I love you, I do, and let's respond as God leads.